this is the segment with the Tech Talk program that I heard all morning. The title is What the H is a NFT? Seek C E E K C E O Mary Spio S P I O Spio breaks down how you can secure the bag with digital assets and crypto in the show notes. NFTs are digital assets representing real-world objects like art, music, in-game items, and videos. Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies are also a way to exchange values in the digital realm. Mary Spiel, founder, CEO, Seek Virtual Reality, joined Roland Martin on Roland Martin Unfiltered to explain if we should drop the traditional way of buying, selling items, and if crypto is really the future of banking. Go to seek.com and use or use a discount for your next purchase. She sells. You can go to seek.com and see what she sells. She has these virtual items for sale. Okay, let's listen in. September 9th. No, I'm sorry, September 8th. Wednesday, yesterday, on YouTube. It says, WTH, what the heck is a NFT? And Seek CEO Mary Spiel breaks down how you can secure the bag, blah, blah, blah. This is their tech talk segment. Looks like it's around 19 minutes and change. Basically, all it is is something that's irreplaceable, but it's a digital. 
digital version of it. And so people are selling digital art that they're tracking on the blockchain, which means that you can't change any of the characteristics of it. And that you really, uh, when you buy that piece of art, you have the digital proof because the blockchain is a whole bunch of people that validate that. And that's basically what it is. It's just digital art. It's just rare goods. Uh, and, and it's all the craze now uh, because, you know, of the ability to track it. All right, so, okay, so perfect example. Uh, this is this uh, uh, painting here. This is a valuable, valuable uh, piece of art. Uh, and this is the Fisk Jubilee Singer, Singers, uh, what is it, sitting in the Queen's Court? Is that what it is? Uh, Queen Victoria's Court, okay? So, I mean, again, uh, folks would love to get their hands on this. Uh, and so... How, so how would this work for an NFT? So how, how would that actually work? So the way they're doing physical art now, like some people would take a picture of the physical art, they'll put it online, and then they'll burn the only copy that they have of the real thing. So now it becomes available uh, in the digital world, and you can sell it, and then you, know, you, you can just continue to sell it, but you really can't track that this is the only copy that you have of that digital art, and that's basically what it is. Okay, so, uh, and, and we're seeing people sell stuff and, you know, as NFTs, and could it be anything? Because, I mean, so here's the thing uh, with art. I mean, so we, we actually buy art. I mean, so, you know, this is an art piece, and then it's framed and things along those lines. And so how do you know it's the only digital? How do you know that? So if you have that particular version and you put it on an NFT platform, which we have our own NFT platform that's coming with a lot of artists, uh, music, you know, musicians that are going to put their stuff on there. So when you put it on there, the blockchain is controlled not by one person. That's why they say it's decentralized. So you've got a ton of people that are actually verifying in a digital ledger that this is the only copy. So in order to verify it, all these unrelated computers, all these independent computers have to verify that that's the only piece of, you know, that's the original piece. So if somebody else puts something out there and tells you that that's the, that piece, they're not going to be able to get all those different computers that are out there on the blockchain to verify it. So you know that it's, you know, it's not the real one. So, all right, so, okay, those are NFTs. All right, now, uh, let's talk about cryptocurrencies. I, I've, I've got people hitting me up saying, Roland, you should be accepting crypto for your Brina Funk fan club. Why? Real money is real money, okay? People who give, people who give to this show, I can take that money and go buy that camera, that monitor, those lights, pay for uh, airline tickets, hotel room, why in the hell should I be accepting cryptocurrency uh, for the Brina Funk Fan Club Roma Unfiltered or Black Star Network? So basically, some people will be able to pay you cash, but some people also are sitting on a lot of cryptocurrencies. So, for example, you know, everybody knows about Bitcoin. There are people that bought Bitcoin when it was 10 cents, and today is, you know, over $40,000 per coin. 
so I got. I know we got questions from our panel. I want to start with uh, Misha first. Misha, what do you? everybody today governor we ever had is being recalled and we need to get our papers in our voting in the mail in some locations in California we can just walk them to somewhere nearby a polling place
world knows by now. It's reported to have died of heroin overdose in the NYPD detectives are asking who supplied the drugs. Typing in the browser. Decide whether you want to continue and hear any more about it because it's not easy to listen to materials about, about families that are suffering, that are survivors after losing a loved one to this illness. About this ebook, Jennifer Needle in Her Arm explores the emotional turmoil that parents go through when they have either lost a child to drugs or have to deal with a child currently addicted drugs. Bonnie Kay, who lost her daughter Jennifer in 2002 at the age of 22, suffered the guilt and shame almost all of losing a child to drugs. In this book, Kay talks about the journey she and 
shares some articles she wrote in the years following her loss to help people understand what parents go through with a drug-addicted child also included a number of heart-wrenching writings that Jennifer gave to her to share with others in hopes that they would read about her pain and not have her daily struggles of survival. One passage includes these words of despair and hope. Dear addiction,
best, fun, and heaven. But all you have given me is hurt and agony and a living hell. small English village. Stan Rogers appeared to have it all, but then he found drugs. As his life descended into chaos and despair, struggles with the aid of a video camera. He was hopeful that one day his experiences could be used to educate others and lost battle against addiction and died when he was 34.
as a result of medical withdrawal. His family decided to release the tapes in the hope that other families could benefit. The result was the highly acclaimed, award-winning Sky Documentary Band Diary of a Heroin Addict, which was shown on national television 27 times and ultimately across the world. Ben's mother, Anne, received hundreds of letters and messages not only from addicts but also from families saying that the documentary had helped them realize that they were not alone. The film took Ben's mom to the home office with interviews on national television, radio, and the press. She has spoken with many young offenders desperate to educate other youngsters about addiction and to honor her son's wishes. The book includes writings and drawings by Ben, which give a unique insight into the chaos surrounding drug addiction. His brother's brother and sisters contribute to to the story of a family living on the edge. Ben, diary of a heroin addict, a mother's fight is both an attack against the government's tolerance of addiction and a powerful and moving depiction of one family's love. Francis Moraes.
and we'll read the introduction. You can find these in your app store. About this ebook, Heroine User's Handbook. Heroine is a fascinating drug to most people. It is often referred to as the, quote, hardest drug, close quote. By this logic, people might start with alcohol, work up to marijuana, and maybe LSD. Then, reach to cocaine or methamphetamine and finally at the end of the journey is heroin but like most things about heroin this is more meth meth Y-T-H, more myth than reality. For non-users, this mythic power is exciting and writers for the last century have been more than willing to pander to such readers. In pulp and art novels all the way up to television crime novels. But it is rare for the most people to get a real look at what is, after all, the very core of what heroin is about for its users. To users, the interest is obvious, obvious, but ignorance of the details of drug use among heroin users is rife, usually based on what the author calls, quote, old junkie tales, close quote. The difference between such folklore and the truth is often the difference between light and 
largely hidden world of heroin use based upon actual work with users and countless scholarly books and articles and it does it in an extremely readable non-technical manner even while providing detailed and accurate information the book discusses all aspects of heroin use the acquisition of drugs the administration of them health risks, legal issues, social aspects, and addiction and detox. It provides the non-heroin world with a detailed look inside a very rarefied subculture but it also provides those in the heroin using world life-saving information Light On, a memoir of recovery and self-discovery by Jennifer Storm. There's a high rating and content is protected by digital rights. About this book introduction, a revealing, hopeful account of a young woman's ascent out of the bleak despair of addiction and how recovery helped her confront traumas and secrets that kept her living in the dark for so long. There's a high rating. And what are the raters saying about Echoes. 
Sexual trauma. Jennifer Storm is the executive director of the Victim Witness Assistance Program in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She graduated from Pennsylvania State University with a BS in Rehabilitation Services and a Master's Degree in Organizational Management from the University of Phoenix. In 2002, Governor Edward G. Rendell appointed Ms. Storm as a Commissioner to the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency. She was later appointed to the Homeland Security Law Enforcement and Justice Systems Advisory Committees, where she also serves on the Terrorism Prevention and Local Law Enforcement Subcommittee. Her media appearances include appearances on all major networks as a spokesperson for victims' rights. She has been profiled or appeared in We Magazine for Women, Central Pen Business Journal, Curve Magazine, Rolling Stone, Time, and many other media. Miss Storm is the author of Blackout Girl, Growing Up and Drying Out in America, 2008. follow-up memoir, Lead the Light on, a memoir of recovery and self-discovery, 2010. And there's another one by the same author, Jennifer Storm, the title, Picking Up, excuse me, Picking Up pieces without picking up a guidebook through victimization for people in recovery.
assist those who need covering who have been victimized by crime or a traumatic event in healing and rebuilding their lives without returning to addictive behavior. have an audio book, but I'm sure that's going to need another episode, but here's the introduction. A new translation from the French by Marianne Giselle about this ebook. Night is Ellie Wiesel's masterpiece, a candid, horrific, and deeply poignant autobiographical account of his survival as a teenager in the Nazi death camps. This new translation by Marianne. Wiesel, Ellie's wife and frequent translator, presents this seminal memoir in the language and spirit truest to the author's original intent. And in a substantive new preface, Ellie reflects on the enduring importance of Knight and his lifelong passionate dedication to ensuring that the world never forgets man's capacity for inhumanity man. Night offers much more than a litany of the daily terrors, everyday perversions, and rampant sadism at Auschwitz and Buchenwald. Also eloquently addresses many of the philosophical as well as personal questions implicit in any serious consideration of what the Holocaust was, what it meant, and what its legacy is and will be.
one that we've ever had in my living memory. But for some reason, other people who are, for some bizarre reason, convinced that they can do a better job, there is no way. But, well, anyways, we left off our book review with Ellie Wiesel's new edition or new translation by his wife, Marion Wiesel. The book is Night. We're switching over to the audiobook to hear some or part of it. camp, so it's a sad story, not for everybody. It's going to uh, cause heartache, maybe even tears. So, this is definitely a deep dive. of human nature. 
He was more concerned with others than with his own family. The Jewish community in Siget held him in the greatest esteem. They often used to consult him about public matters and even about private ones. There were four of us children, Hilda, the eldest, then Bea. I was the third and the only son. The baby of the family was Zipporah. My parents ran a shop. Hilda and Bea helped them with the work. As for me, they said my place was at school. There aren't any Kabbalists at Siget, my father would repeat. He wanted to drive the notion out of my head, but it was in vain. I found a master for myself, Moshe the Medium. He had noticed me one day at dusk when I was praying. Why do you weep when you pray? He asked me, as though he had known me a long time. I don't know why, I answered, greatly disturbed. The question had never entered my head. I wept because, because of something inside me that felt the need. That was all I knew. Why do you pray? He asked me after a moment. Why did I pray? A strange question. Why did I live? Why did I breathe? I don't know why, I said, even more disturbed and ill at ease. I don't know why. After that day, I saw him often. He explained to me with great insistence that every question possessed a power that did not lie in the answer. Man raises himself toward God by the questions he asks him, he was fond of repeating. That is the true dialogue. Man questions God and God answers. But we don't understand his answers. We can't understand them because they come from the depths of the soul and they stay there until death. You will find the true answers, Eliezer, only within yourself. And why do you pray, Moshe? I asked him. I pray to the God within me that he will give me the strength to ask him the right questions. We talked like this nearly every evening. We used to stay in the synagogue after all the faithful sitting in the gloom where a few half-burned candles still gave a flickering light. One evening I told him how unhappy I was because I could not find a master in Sigurd to instruct me in the Zohar, the Kabbalistic books, the secrets of Jewish mysticism. He smiled indulgently. After a long silence, he said, There are a thousand and one gates leading into the orchard of mystical truth. Every human being has his own gate. We must never make the mistake of wanting to enter the orchard by any gate but our own. To do this is dangerous for the one who enters and also for those who are already there. And Moshe the Beadle, the poor barefoot of Sigurd, talked to me for long hours of the revelations and mysteries of the Kabbalah. It was with him that my initiation began. We would read together ten times over the same page of the Zohar, not to learn it by heart, but to extract the divine essence from it. And throughout those evenings, a conviction grew in me that Moshe the Beadle would draw me with him into eternity, into that time 
where question and answer would become one. Then, one day, they expelled all the foreign Jews from Sigmund, and Moshe the Beadle was a foreigner. Crammed into cattle trains by Hungarian police, they wept bitterly. We stood on the platform and wept too. The train disappeared on the horizon. It left nothing behind but its thick, dirty smoke. I heard a Jew behind me heave a sigh. What can we expect, he said. It's war. The deportees were soon forgotten. A few days after they had gone, people were saying that they had arrived in Galicia, were working there, and were even satisfied with their lot. Several days passed, several weeks, several months. Life had returned to normal. A wind of calmness and reassurance blew through our houses. The traders were doing good business, the students lived buried in their books, and the children played in the streets. One day, as I was just going into the synagogue, I saw, sitting on a bench near the door, Moshe the Beadle. He told his story and that of his companions. The train full of deportees had crossed the Hungarian frontier and on Polish territory had been taken in charge by the Gestapo. There it had stopped. The Jews had to get out and climb into lorries. The lorries drove toward a forest. The Jews were made to get out. They were made to dig huge graves. And when they had finished their work, the Gestapo began theirs. Without passion, without haste, they slaughtered their prisoners. Each one had to go up to the hole and present his neck. Babies were thrown into the air and the machine gunners used them as targets. This was in the forest of Galicia near Colomea. How had Moshe the Beadle escaped? Miraculously. He was wounded in the leg and taken for dead. Through long days and nights, he went from one Jewish house to another, telling the story of Malka, the young girl who had taken three days to die, and of Tobias, the tailor, who had begged to be killed before his sons. Moshe had changed. There was no longer any joy in his eyes. He no longer sang. He no longer talked to me of God or of the Kabbalah, but only of what he had seen. People refused not only to believe his stories, but even to listen to them. He's just trying to make us pity him. What an imagination he has, they said. Or even, poor fellow, he's gone mad. And as for Moshe, he wept. Jews, listen to me. It's all I ask of you. I don't want money or pity. Only listen to me. He would cry between prayers at dusk and the evening prayers. I did not believe him myself. I would often sit with him in the evening after the service, listening to his stories and trying my hardest to understand his grief. I felt only pity for him. They take me for a madman, he would whisper, and tears like drops of wax flowed from his eyes. Once I asked him this question, why are you so anxious that people should believe what you say? In your place, I shouldn't care whether they believed me or not. He closed his eyes as though to escape time. You don't understand, he said in despair. You can't understand. I have been saved miraculously. I managed to get back here. Where did I get the strength from? 
I wanted to come back to Sigurd to tell you the story of my death, so that you could prepare yourselves while there was still time to live. I don't attach any importance to my life anymore. I'm alone. No, I wanted to come back and to warn you and see how it is. No one will listen to me. That was toward the end of 1942. Afterward, life returned to normal. The London radio, which we listened to every evening, gave us heartening news. The daily bombardment of Germany, Stalingrad, preparation for the Second Front. And we, the Jews of Sigurd, were waiting for better days, which would not be long in coming now. I continued to devote myself to my studies. By day, the Talmud, at night, the Kabbalah. My father was occupied with his business and the doings of the country. My grandfather had come to celebrate the new year with us so that he could attend the services of the famous rabbi of Borsha. My mother began to think that it was high time to find a suitable young man for Hilda. Thus, the year 1943 passed by. Spring 1944. Good news from the Russian front. No doubt could remain now of Germany's defeat. It was only a question of time, of months or weeks, perhaps. The trees were in blossom. This was a year like any other, with its springtime, its betrothals, its weddings and births. People said, the Russian army's making gigantic strides forward. Hitler won't be able to do us any harm, even if he wants to. Yes, we even doubted that he wanted to exterminate us. Was he going to wipe out a whole people? Could he exterminate a population scattered throughout so many countries, so many millions? What methods could he use? And in the middle of the 20th century? Besides, people were interested in everything, in strategy, in diplomacy, in politics, in Zionism, but not in their own fate. Even Moshe the Beadle was silent. He was weary of speaking. He wandered in the synagogue or in the streets with his eyes down, his back bent, avoiding people's eyes. At that time, it was still possible to obtain immigration permits for Palestine. I had asked my father to sell out, liquidate his business, and leave. I'm too old, my son, he replied. I'm too old to start a new life. I'm too old to start from scratch again in a country so far away. The Budapest radio announced that the fascist party had come into Forty had been forced to ask one of the leaders of the Nailas party to form a new government. Still, this was not enough to worry us. Of course, we had heard about the fascists, but they were still just an abstraction to us. This was only a change in the administration. The following day, there was more disturbing news. With government permission, German troops had entered Hungarian territory. Here and there, anxiety was aroused. One of our friends, Berkowitz, who had just returned from the capital, told us that Jews in Budapest are living in an atmosphere of fear and terror. There are anti-Semitic incidents every day in the streets, in trains. The fascists are attacking Jewish shops and synagogues. The situation is getting very serious. This news spread like wildfire through Sigurd. Soon it was on everyone's lips, but not for long. Optimism soon revived. The Germans won't get as far as this. 
They'll stay in Budapest. There are strategic and political reasons. Before three days had passed, German army cars had appeared in our streets. Anguish. German soldiers with their steel helmets and their emblem, the death's head. However, our first impressions of the Germans were most reassuring. The officers were billeted in private houses, even in the homes of Jews. Their attitude toward their hosts was distant but polite. They never demanded the impossible, made no unpleasant comments, and even smiled occasionally at the mistress of the house. One German officer lived in the house opposite ours. He had a room with the Kahn family. They said he was a charming man, calm, likable, polite, and sympathetic. Three days after he moved in, he brought Madame Kahn a box of chocolates. The optimists rejoiced. Well, there you are, you see. What did we tell you? You wouldn't believe us. There they are, your Germans. What do you think of them? Where is their famous cruelty? Germans were already in the town, the fascists were already in power, the verdict had already been pronounced. Yet the Jews of Siget continued to smile. The week of Passover. The weather was wonderful. My mother bustled around her kitchen. There were no longer any synagogues open. We gathered in private houses. The Germans were not to be provoked. Practically every rabbi's flat became a house of prayer. We drank, we ate, we sang. The Bible bade us rejoice during the seven days of the feast to be happy. But our hearts were not in it. Our hearts had been beating more rapidly for some days. We wished the feast were over so that we should not have to play this comedy any longer. On the seventh day of Passover, the curtain rose. The Germans arrested the leaders of the Jewish community. From that moment, everything happened very quickly. The race toward death had begun. The first step, Jews would not be allowed to leave their houses for three days, on pain of death. Moshe the Beetle came running to our house. I warned you, he cried to my father, and without waiting for a reply, he fled. That same day, the Hungarian police burst into all the Jewish houses in the street. A Jew no longer had the right to keep in his house gold, jewels, or any objects of value. Everything had to be handed over to the authorities on pain of death. My father went down into the cellar and buried our savings. At home, my mother continued to busy herself with her usual tasks. At times, she would pause and gaze at us, silent. When the three days were up, there was a new decree. Every Jew must wear the yellow star. Some of the prominent members of the community came to see my father, who had highly placed connections in the Hungarian police, to ask him what he thought of the situation. My father did not consider it so grim, but perhaps he did not want to dishearten the others or rub salt in their wounds. The yellow star? Oh, well, what of it? You don't die of it. issuing new decrees. We were no longer allowed to go into restaurants or cafes, to travel on the railway, to attend the synagogue, to go out into the street after six o'clock. Then came the ghetto. Two ghettos were set up in Siget. 
A large one in the center of the town occupied four streets, and another smaller one extended over several small side streets in the outlying district. The street where we lived, Serpent Street, was inside the first ghetto. We still lived, therefore, in our own house, but as it was at the corner, the windows facing the outside street had to be blocked up. We gave up some of our rooms to relatives who had been driven out of their flats. Little by little, life returned to normal. The barbed wire which fenced us in did not cause us any real fear. We even thought ourselves rather well off. We were entirely self-contained, a little Jewish republic. We appointed a Jewish council, a Jewish police, an office for social assistance, a labor committee, a hygiene department, a whole government machinery. Everyone marveled at it. We should no longer have before our eyes those hostile faces, those hate-laden stares. Our fear and anguish were at an end. We were living among Jews, among brothers. Of course, there were still some unpleasant moments. Every day the Germans came to fetch men to stoke coal on the military trains. There were not many volunteers for work of this kind. But apart from that, the atmosphere was peaceful and reassuring. The general opinion was that we were going to remain in the ghetto until the end of the war, until the arrival of the Red Army. Then everything would be as before. It was neither German nor Jew who ruled the ghetto. It was illusion. On the Saturday before Pentecost, in the spring sunshine, people strolled, carefree and unheeding, through the swarming streets. They chatted happily. The children played games on the pavements. With some of my schoolmates, I sat in the Ezra Malik gardens, studying a treatise on the Talmud. Night fell. There were twenty people gathered in our backyard. My father was telling them anecdotes and expounding his own views on the situation. He was a good storyteller. Suddenly, the gate opened. Stern, a former tradesman who had become a policeman, came in and took my father aside. Despite the gathering dusk, I saw my father turn pale. What's the matter? We all asked him. I don't know. I've been summoned to an extraordinary meeting of the council. Something must have happened. The good story he had been in the middle of telling us was to remain unfinished. I'm going there. I shall be back as soon as I can. I'll tell you all about it. Wait for me prepared to wait for some hours. The backyard became like the hall outside an operating room. We were only waiting for the door to open, to see the opening of the firmament itself. Other neighbors, having heard rumors, had come to join us. People looked at their watches. The time passed very slowly. What could such a long meeting mean? I've got a premonition of evil, said my mother. This afternoon, I noticed some new faces in the ghetto. Two German officers from the Gestapo, I believe. Since we've been here, not a single officer has ever shown himself. It was nearly midnight. No one had wanted to go to bed. A few people had paid a flying visit to their homes to see that everything was all right. Others had returned home, but they left instructions that they were to be told as soon as my father came back. At last, the door opened, and he appeared.
enjoyed it. The title is Night in the I-G-H-T by Ellie Gonzalez. I'm scary. Anthology written by Charlene Harris of the Suki Stock Suki Suki Stackhouse novel. This is what it says about the book. After Dead, what came next in the world of Suki Stackhouse? About this audiobook, Dead After marked the end of the Suki Stackhouse novels, a series that generated millions of fans and spawned the hit HBO television show True Blood. It also stoked a hunger that will never die, a hunger to know what happened next. With characters arranged alphabetically from the ancient Pythons, Pythoness to Bethany Zanelli, best-selling author Charlene Harris takes fans into the future of their favorite residence of Bon Tons and environs. You will learn how Michelle and Jason's marriage fair what happened to Suki's cousin Hunter and whether Tara and JB's twins grew up to be solid citizens. This coda provides the answers to your lingering questions, including details of Suki's own happily ever after. It's a throwback to 2013. Fiction, fantasy, contemporary, genre, paranormal, And all of those books, <laughs> every last one of them, is worth the time to read them.
entertaining and relaxing. And at the same time, edgy. Very edgy. Not so much scary, but... Charlene Harris writes. This woman was born to write. There's vampires and shapeshifters and werewolves and everything in her, her books. And that was long, long before the Twilight series. But the True Blood HBO TV series was based upon, upon her Sippy Stackhouse novel. She has other books as well, other series. Okay, we're going to listen to a sample from the Play Store. Enjoy. Recorded books and one-click digital present After Dead, What Came Next in the World of Suki Stackhouse by Charlene Harris, narrated by Johanna Parker. Coda material. After I began writing the final novel in the Sookie Stackhouse series, I was deluged by questions from readers who all wanted to know the same thing. How to find out what happened to a score of characters who couldn't make an appearance in the last book. It was obvious I couldn't fit all of the people in Bonton and its environs into Dead Ever After. So, in the interest of satisfying the readers who've been following Sookie's adventures for years, I herewith present my coda to the books that have dominated my professional life for over a decade. In alphabetical order, the ancient Pythoness continues to be cared for by the vampires of Rhodes. The donors from the donor bureau who were sent to her have to be carefully briefed because giving her blood is terrifying and definitely unsexy. Greg and Christy O'Bear continue to work at Greg's insurance agency, Pelican State. Greg, a natural wedge, struggled with using his innate power to improve his business after he almost ran all the other insurance agents in Bonton into the ground. He underwent an intervention, telling the psychologist he was an alcoholic, to change his behavior. Not too surprisingly, the treatment didn't work too well. Greg finally managed to impress Greg Jr., was watching from the garage one day when his dad reinflated a tire by pointing his finger at it. Lindsay, their daughter, sowed her wild oats and then settled down to teach tap and jazz to little girls in Clarice. She married a farmer. Connie Babcock, the deceitful secretary at Herbeau and Son, was not able to get a comparable job after she was fired. She ended up working as a guard at a correctional facility. The Ballinger family, Dope, Mindy, Bonnie, and Mason, are living happily in Mooney, Texas. Dope got laid off for a while. He was called back to work before things got too tight. Mindy got a job working as a secretary at the high school, and she really enjoyed it. Mason had nightmares about the day of his uncle's wedding, but his parents talked to him a lot and sent him to a counselor, and he got through it. He became a manager at a mattress factory. Bonnie didn't remember that awful day, wedding was picketed by protesters, but she became an activist for various social causes later in life. She was also the best veterinarian in West Texas. 
Christian Baruch was accused of unprofessional behavior at a meeting of the Vampire Hoteliers Association. He was never seen again. Matanya and Clovash, the Britlingans. The Britlingan Collective continues its business of providing protection to whoever can pay for it in several worlds. Matanya thinks Clovash is the best partner she's ever had, and they've had many adventures in many strange situations. So far, They've come out alive. Isabel Beaumont, Dallas vampire, racked up an impressive body count among the rebels responsible for killing her king, Stan. She still lives in Dallas and has become Joseph Velasquez's right hand. She never dates humans. Alcy and Barbara Beck went away for a vacation in Hawaii after the events of Dead Ever After. They returned after two weeks with some very interesting underwear and big smiles on their faces. Andy and Hallie Belfleur welcomed their daughter, Caroline, two months after the events of Dead Ever After. Caroline was born with a heart defect, but after some surgery, she lived a relatively normal life for many years. They had two more children, sons, Jared and Clayton. Caroline's heart defect unexpectedly caused complications when she was a senior in high school, and Andy and Hallie buried her in her cheerleader uniform. Jared and Clayton both became lawyers, like their aunt, Portia Belfleur Vick. Terry and Jimmy Belfleur welcomed many litters of pups to their double wives, and three of the pups won prizes at Catahoula shows. Eight years after their marriage, the two died in a two-car accident when they were returning from a grandchild's birthday party. Terry was sincerely mourned by Jimmy's children and grandchildren, and they gave a donation to the VA hospital in Shreveport in Terry's honor. It was earmarked for the treatment of prisoners of war. Bernard the Vampire, a great friend of Russell Edgington's, became an even better friend of Christopher Hauser. I'm sure that wasn't everybody, because they didn't get grands, like his grandmother. I think they talked about chasing his brother. There's, oh, I guess, I don't know. But she had uh, several friends that they didn't mention. She had a lot of friends and family that they didn't mention. Whew. <laughs> well, we all know the uh, area... The vampire genre in this setting or area of Louisiana and around New Orleans, New Orleans, or New Orleans, New Orleans. You know, that's the top of the line. That's where you get the good stories. Check for and write. And rice for me. I thought she was exceptionally talented. But when I read um, Charlene Harris and a few other people, it, it, 
highlight uh, books when I read those. I, I never looked back. <laughs> and Rice's books were too serious compared to Charlene Harris or Stephanie Meyer. They used a lot of humor in their books. And it stays like, but with Anne Rice, She, she writes so well that you actually experience, that's the way I could, the best way I could describe it, you actually experience what she's writing. You come so close to just experiencing everything she's talking about. Is that real? She's a powerful powerful writer. I think that movie that uh, I don't know, was it Brad Pitt or somebody that did the movie in the interview with the vampire we're going to find out because here's a copy of the audio book interview with the vampire and writes Let's read some notes. In celebration, in celebration of the 40th anniversary of its publication, time is now. <laughs> we are in a small room with the vampire face to face as he speaks, as he speaks, as he pours out the hypnotic, shocking, moving, and erotically charged confession of his first 200 years as one of the living dead. He speaks quietly, plainly, even gently, carrying us back to the night when he departed human existence as air, young, romantic, cultivated to a great Louisiana plantation and was induced, no, was inducted by the radiant and sinister Lestat into the other, the quote, endless, close sustain himself on the blood of cocks and rats caught in the rapish streets of New Orleans, then on the blood of human beings. 
moving away from his final human tides under the tutelage of the hated yet necessary Lestat. He gradually embraces the habits, hungers, feelings of vampirism. The detachment, the hardened will, the superior sensual pleasures He carries us back to the crucial moment in a dark New Orleans street when he finds the exquisite lost young child, Claudia, wanting not to hurt but to comfort her struggling against the last residue of human feeling within him. We see how Claudia in turn is made a vampire. All her passion and intelligence tapped forever in the body, trapped forever in the body of a small child, and how they arrive at their passionate and dangerous alliance, their French Quarter life of opulence, delicate Grecian statutes, Chinese vases, crystal chandeliers, a butler, a maid, a stone nymph in the hidden garden court. Night curving into night with their vampire senses heightened to the beauty of the world, thirsting for the beauty of death, a constant stream of vulnerable strangers awaiting them below. We see them joined against the envious, dangerous Lestat, embarking on a perilous search across Europe for others like themselves, desperate to discover the world they belong to ways of survival to know what they are and why, where they came from and what their future 
them across Austria and Transylvania, encountering their kind in forms beyond their wildest imagining to Paris, where footsteps behind them in exact rhythm with their own steer them to the doors of the theater. Death vampires or it's in French um <sighs> looks like they are this vampires. Sorry about that. French <laughs> is totally foreign to me. A beautiful lewd and febrile mine mime theater whose posters of any dreadful vampires at once mask and reveal the horror within to their meeting with the eerily magnetic Armand who brings them at last into intimacy with a whole brilliant and decadent society of vampires an intimacy that becomes sudden terror when they are compelled to confront what they have feared and fled in its unceasing flow of spellbinding storytelling of danger and flight, of loyalty and treachery. Interview with the vampire bears witness of a literary imagination of the first order. Yeah, there's nobody, nobody that can write the way that Anne Rice writes. I mean, there are people just as talented or even more talented, but her style is, it stands out by itself. Just too scary for me. <laughs> the genre is fiction and horror. Thriller suspense. Let's see, this is a May 2011th published. Okay. Prepare yourself. This, I didn't find any humor in her writing. But to be fair and honest, 
had to set her books aside because they, for me, they were just too overpowering and too scary. It just seemed as though she was writing someone's autobiography. And that vampire Lestat, he was just too horrible for <laughs> He was too horrible, I couldn't take him. Okay, here we go. Interview with the in Vampire by Anne Rice. And if they if they offer a longer version, then I will click that and it will start over again from where from the beginning. So we may hear couple of minutes repeat itself. Random House Audio presents Interview with the Vampire, book one of The Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice, read for you by Simon Vance. For Stan Rice, Carol Malkin, and Alice O'Brien Walker. Part one. I see said the vampire thoughtfully, and slowly he walked across the room towards the window. For a long time, he stood there against the dim light from the Visadero Street and the passing beams of traffic. The boy could see the furnishings of the room more clearly now, the round oak table, the chairs. A washbasin hung on one wall with a mirror. He set his briefcase on the table and waited. But how much tape do you have with you? asked the vampire, turning now so the boy could see his profile. Enough for the story of a life? Sure, if it's a good life. Sometimes I interview as many as three or four people a night if I'm lucky. But it has to be a good story. That's only fair, isn't it? Admirably fair, the vampire answered. I would like to tell you the story of my life, then. I would like to do that very much. Great, said the boy, and quickly he removed the small tape recorder from his briefcase, making a check of the cassette and the batteries. I'm really anxious to hear why you believe this, why you... No, said the vampire abruptly. We can't begin that way. Is your equipment ready? Yes, said the boy. Then sit down. I'm going to turn on the overhead light. But I thought vampires didn't like light, said the boy. If you think the dark adds to the atmosphere... But then he stopped. The vampire was watching him with his back to the window. The boy could make out nothing of his face now, and something about the still figure there distracted him. He started to say something again, but he said nothing. And then he sighed with relief when the vampire moved towards the table and reached for the overhead cord. At once the room was flooded with a harsh, yellow light, and the boy, staring up at the vampire, could not repress a gasp. His fingers danced backwards on the table to grasp the edge. Dear God, he whispered, and then he gazed, speechless, at the vampire. The vampire was utterly white and smooth, as if he were sculpted from bleached bone and his face was as seemingly inanimate as a statue, except for two brilliant green eyes that looked down at the boy intently like flames in a skull. 
But then the vampire smiled, almost wistfully, and the smooth white substance of his face moved with the infinitely flexible but minimal lines of a cartoon. Do you see? he asked softly. The boy shuddered, lifting his hand as if to shield himself from a powerful light. His eyes moved slowly over the finely tailored black coat he'd only glimpsed in the bar. The long folds of the cape, the black silk tie knotted at the throat, and the gleam of the white collar that was as white as the vampire's flesh. He stared at the vampire's full black hair, the waves that were combed back over the tips of the ears, the curls that barely touched the edge of the white collar. Now, do you still want the interview? the vampire asked. The boy's mouth was open before the sound came out. He was nodding. Then he said, yes. The vampire sat down slowly opposite him and leaning forward said gently, confidentially, don't be afraid. Just start the tape. And then he reached out over the length of the table. The boy recoiled, sweat running down the sides of his face. The vampire clamped a hand on the boy's shoulder and said, believe me, I won't hurt you. I want this opportunity. It's more important to me than you can realize now. I want you to begin. And he withdrew his hand and sat, collected, waiting. It took a moment for the boy to wipe his forehead and his lips with a handkerchief, to stammer that the microphone was in the machine, to press the button, to say that the machine was on. You weren't always a vampire, were you? He began. No answered the vampire. I was a 25-year-old man when I became a vampire, and the year was 1791. The boy was startled by the preciseness of the date, and he repeated it before he asked, How did it come about? There's a simple answer to that. I don't believe I want to give simple answers, said the vampire. I think I want to tell the real story. Yes, the boy said quickly. He was folding his handkerchief over and over and wiping his lips now with it again. There was a tragedy, the vampire started. It was my younger brother. He died. And then he stopped, so that the boy cleared his throat and wiped at his face again before stuffing the handkerchief almost impatiently into his pocket. It's not painful, is it? he asked timidly. Does it seem so? asked the vampire. No. He shook his head. It's simply that I've only told this story to one other person. And that was so long ago. No, it's not painful. We were living in Louisiana then. We'd received a land grant and settled two indigo plantations on the Mississippi, very near New Orleans. Ah, that's the accent, the boy said softly. For a moment the vampire stared blankly. I have an accent? He began to laugh. And the boy, flustered, answered quickly. I noticed it in the bar when I asked you what you did for a living. It's just a slight sharpness to the consonants, that's all. I never guessed it was French. It's all right, the vampire assured him. I'm not as shocked as I pretend to be. It's only that I forget it from time to time. But let me go on. Please, said the boy. I was talking about the plantations. 
They had a great deal to do with it, really. My becoming a vampire. But I'll come to that. Our life there was both luxurious and primitive, and we ourselves found it extremely attractive. You see, we lived far better there than we could have ever lived in France. Perhaps the sheer wilderness of Louisiana only made it seem so, but seeming so it was. I remember the imported furniture that cluttered the house. The vampire smiled, and the harpsichord that was lovely. My sister used to play it. On summer evenings, she would sit at the keys with her back to the open French windows. And I can still remember that thin, rapid music and the vision of the swamp rising beyond her, the moss-hung cypresses floating against the sky. And there were the sounds of the swamp, a chorus of creatures, the cry of the birds. I think we loved it. It made the rosewood furniture all the more precious, the music more delicate and desirable. Even when the wisteria tore the shutters off the attic windows and worked its tendrils right into the whitewashed brick in less than a year, yes, we loved it. All except my brother. I don't think I ever heard him complain of anything, but I knew how he felt. My father was dead then, and I was head of the family and I had to defend him constantly from my mother and sister. They wanted to take him visiting, and to New Orleans for parties, but he hated these things. I think he stopped going altogether before he was twelve. Prayer was what mattered to him. Prayer and his leather-bound lives of the saints. Finally, I built him an oratory, removed from the house, and he began to spend most of every day there, and often the early evening. It was ironic, really. He was so different from us, so different from everyone, and I was so regular. There was nothing extraordinary about me whatsoever. The vampire smiled. Sometimes in the evening I would go out to him and find him in the garden near the oratory, sitting absolutely composed on a stone bench there, and I'd tell him my troubles, the difficulties I had with the slaves, how I distrusted the overseer, or the weather, or my brokers, all the problems that made up the length and breadth of my existence. And he would listen, making only a few comments, always sympathetic, so that when I left him I had the distinct impression he had solved everything for me. I didn't think I could deny him anything. I vowed that no matter how it would break my heart to lose him, he could enter the priesthood when the time came. Of course, I was wrong. The vampire stopped. For a moment, the boy only gazed at him, and then he started as if awakened from deep thought, and he floundered as if he could not find the right words. Uh, he didn't want to be a priest? the boy asked. Lestat. Well, <laughs> what 
does this say here? A rock star in the demonic shimmering 1980s. He rushes through the centuries in search of others like him seeking answers to the mystery of his eternal terrifying existence. He is a mesmerizing story, passionate, complex, and thrilling. Oh, <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, I recall, he's a real hardcore gangster vampire, but it's been a long time since I read it. Let's listen in. Random House Audio presents The Vampire the Stat, book two of The Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice. Read for you by Simon Vance. This book is dedicated with love to Stan Rice, Karen O'Brien, and Alan Davio. Downtown Saturday night in the 20th century, 1984. I am the vampire Lestat. I'm immortal, more or less. The light of the sun, the sustained heat of an intense fire. These things might destroy me. But then again, they might not. I'm six feet tall, which was fairly impressive in the 1780s when I was a young, mortal man. It's not bad now. I have thick, blonde hair, not quite shoulder-length, and rather curly, which appears white under fluorescent light. My eyes are grey, but they absorb the colours blue or violet easily from surfaces around them. And I have a fairly short, narrow nose, and a mouth that is well-shaped but just a little too big for my face. It can look very mean, or extremely generous, my mouth. It always looks sensual. But emotions and attitudes are always reflected in my entire expression. I have a continuously animated face. My vampire nature reveals itself in extremely white and highly reflective skin that has to be powdered down for cameras of any kind. And if I'm starved for blood, I look like a perfect horror. Skin shrunken, veins like ropes over the contours of my bones. But I don't let that happen now. And the only consistent indication that I am not human is my fingernails. It's the same with all vampires. Our fingernails look like glass. And some people notice that when they don't notice anything else. Right now, I am what America calls a rock superstar. My first album has sold four million copies. I'm going to San Francisco for the first spot on a nationwide concert tour that will take my band from coast to coast. MTV, the rock music cable channel, has been playing my video clips night and day for two weeks. 
They're also being shown in England on Top of the Pops, and on the continent, probably in some parts of Asia and in Japan. Video cassettes of the whole series of clips are selling worldwide. I am also the author of an autobiography which was published last week. Regarding my English, the language I use in my autobiography, I first learned it from a flatboatman who came down the Mississippi to New Orleans about 200 years ago. I learned more after that from the English language writers, everybody from Shakespeare through Mark Twain to H. Ryder Haggard, whom I read as the decades passed. The final infusion I received from the detective stories of the early 20th century in the Black Mask magazine. The Adventures of Sam Spade by Dashiell Hammett in Black Mask were the last stories I read before I went literally and figuratively underground. That was in New Orleans in 1929. When I write, I drift into a vocabulary that would have been natural to me in the 18th century, into phrases shaped by the authors I've read. But in spite of my French accent, I talk like a cross between a flatboatman and Detective Sam Spade, actually. So I hope you'll bear with me when my style is inconsistent, when I blow the atmosphere of an 18th century seam to smithereens now and then. I came out into the 20th century last year. What brought me up were two things. First, the information I was receiving from amplified voices that had begun their cacophony in the air around the time I lay down to sleep. I'm referring here to the voices of radios, of course, and phonographs, and later, television machines. I heard the radios in the cars that passed in the streets of the old garden district near the place where I lay. I heard the phonographs and TVs from the houses that surrounded mine. Now, when a vampire goes underground, as we call it, when he ceases to drink blood and he just lies in the earth, he soon becomes too weak to resurrect himself, and what follows is a dream state. In that state, I absorb the voices sluggishly, surrounding them with my own responsive images, as a mortal does in sleep. But at some point during the past 55 years, I began to remember what I was hearing, to follow the entertainment programs, to listen to the news broadcasts, the lyrics and rhythms of the popular songs. And very gradually, I began to understand the caliber of the changes that the world had undergone. I began listening for specific pieces of information about wars or inventions, certain new patterns of speech. Then a self-consciousness developed in me. I realized I was no longer dreaming. I was thinking about what I heard. I was wide awake. I was lying in the ground and I was starved for living blood. I started to believe that maybe all the old wounds I'd sustained had been healed by now. Maybe my strength had come back. Maybe my strength had actually increased as it would have done with time if I'd never been hurt. I wanted to find out. I started to think incessantly of drinking human blood. The second thing that brought me back, the decisive thing really, was the sudden presence near me of a band of young rock singers who called themselves Satan's Night Out. They moved into a house on 6th Street, 
less than a block away from where I slumbered, under my own house on Britannia, near the Lafayette Cemetery. And they started to rehearse their rock music in the attic sometime in 1984. I could hear their whining electric guitars, their frantic singing. It was as good as the radio and stereo songs I heard, and it was more melodic than most. There was a romance to it, in spite of the pounding drums. The electric piano sounded like a harpsichord. I caught images from the thoughts of the musicians that told me what they looked like, what they saw when they looked at each other and into mirrors. They were slender, sinewy, and altogether lovely young mortals, beguilingly androgynous and even a little savage in their dress and movements, two male and one female. They drowned out most of the other amplified voices around me when they were playing, but that was perfectly all right. I wanted to rise and join the rock band called Satan's Night Out. I wanted to sing and to dance. But I can't say that in the very beginning there was great thought behind my wish. It was rather a rolling impulse, strong enough to bring me up from the earth. I was enchanted by the world of rock music. The way the singers could scream of good and evil, proclaim themselves angels or devils, and mortals would stand up and cheer. Sometimes they seemed the pure embodiment of madness. And yet it was technologically dazzling, the intricacy of their performance. It was barbaric and cerebral in a way that I don't think the world of ages past had ever seen. Of course, it was metaphor, the raving. None of them believed in angels or devils, no matter how well they assumed their parts. And the players of the old Italian commedia had been as shocking, as inventive, as lewd. Yet it was entirely new, the extremes to which they took it, the brutality and the defiance, and the way they were embraced by the world from the very rich to the very poor. Also, there was something vampiric about rock music. It must have sounded supernatural even to those who don't believe in the supernatural. I mean the way the electricity could stretch a single note forever. The way harmony could be layered upon harmony until you felt yourself dissolving in the sound. So eloquent of dread it was, this music. The world just didn't have it in any form before. Yes, I wanted to get closer to it. I wanted to do it. Maybe make the little unknown band of Satan's Night Out famous. I was ready to come up. It took a week to rise, more or less. I fed on the fresh blood of the little animals that live under the earth when I could catch them. Then I started clawing for the surface where I could summon the rats. From there, it wasn't too difficult to take felines, and finally the inevitable human victim, though I had to wait a long time for the particular kind I wanted. A man who had killed other mortals and showed no remorse. One came along eventually, walking right by the fence, a young male with a grizzled beard who had murdered another in some far-off place on the other side of the world. True killer, this one. Too strong for me. <laughs> oh. 
Alright, there's another one, the queen of the damned. Yeah, she writes about, um, she writes about this, uh, female, or maybe confusing her with, um, another writer, because there's quite a few. Is Octavia Butler. Hers are real good. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Okay, back to the... About this audio book. In a feast of virtuoso storytelling, Anne Rice unleashes Akasha. Akasha. The Queen of the Damned, who has risen from a 6,000-year sleep to let loose the powers of the night. Akasha has a marvelously devious plan to, quote, save, close quote, mankind and destroy the vampire Lestat. In this extraordinarily sensual novel of the complex, erotic, electrifying world of the undead, This one is 2011, 2011, no, I've never read that one, I know there's one Lilith, but that must be uh, in Charlene Harris's novels, oh well, we'll see, we're going to listen to a preview of Queen of the Damned. Random House Audio presents The Queen of the Damned. Book 3 of the Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice. Read for you by Simon Vance. This book. Oh, we're almost out of time. So we'll We'll finish. We'll hear whatever we can. Thank you for listening. Random House Audio presents The Queen of the Damned, Book 3 of the Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice. Read for you by Simon Vance. This book is dedicated with love to Stan Rice, Christopher Rice, and John Preston and to the memory of my beloved editors, John Dodds and William Whitehead. Tragic Rabbit Tragic Rabbit, a painting. The caked ears green like rolled corn. The black forehead pointing at the stars. A painting on my wall, alone. As rabbits are, and aren't. 
Fat red cheek, all art, trembling nose, a habit hard to break as not. You too can be a tragic rabbit, green and red, your back, blue, your manly little chest. But if you're ever goaded into being one, beware the true flesh. It will knock you off your tragic horse and break your tragic colors like a ghost breaks marble. Your wounds will heal so quickly water will be jealous. Rabbits on white paper painted outgrow all charms against their breeding wild, and their rolled corn ears become horns. So watch out if the tragic life feels fine. Caught in that rabbit trap, all colors look like sunlight's swords and scissors like the living lord. Stan Rice. Some Lamb. 1975. The Queen of the Damned. I'm the vampire Lestat. Remember me? The vampire who became a super rock star. And the one who wrote the autobiography. And the one with the blonde hair and the grey eyes and the insatiable desire for visibility and fame. You remember? I wanted to be a symbol of evil in a shining century that didn't have any place for the literal evil that I am. I even figured I'd do some good in that fashion, playing the devil on the painted stage. And I was off to a good start when we talked last. I just made my debut in San Francisco. First live concert for me and my mortal band. Our album was a huge success. My autobiography was doing respectably with both the dead and the undead. Then something utterly unforeseen took place. Well, at least I hadn't seen it coming. And when I left you, I was hanging from the proverbial cliff, you might say. Well, it's all over now. What followed? I've survived, obviously. I wouldn't be talking to you if I hadn't. And the cosmic dust has finally settled. And the small rift in the world's fabric of rational beliefs has been mended. Or at least closed. I'm a little sadder for all of it. And a little meaner. And a little more conscientious as well. I'm also infinitely more powerful, though the human in me is closer to the surface than ever. An anguished and hungry being who both loves and detests this invincible immortal shell in which I'm locked. The bloodthirst? Insatiable. Though physically I have never needed the blood less, possibly I could exist now without it altogether. But the lust I feel for everything that walks tells me that this will never be put to the test. You know, it was never merely the need for the blood anyway. Though the blood is all things sensual that a creature could desire. It's the intimacy of that moment, drinking, killing, the great heart-to-heart -heart dance that takes place as the victim weakens, and I feel myself expanding, swallowing the death which, for a split second, blazes as large as the life. That's deceptive, however. No death can be as large as a life. And that's why I keep taking life, isn't it? And I'm as far from salvation now as I could ever get. The fact that I know it only makes it worse. Of course, I can still pass for human. All of us can, in one way or another, no matter how old we are. Collar up, hat down, dark glasses, hands in pockets. It usually does the trick. I like slim leather jackets and tight jeans for this disguise now. And a pair of plain black boots that are good for walking on any terrain. 
But now and then I wear the fancier silks which people like in these southern climes where I now reside. If someone does look too closely, then there is a little telepathic razzle-dazzle. Perfectly normal what you see. And a flash of the old smile, fang, teeth easily concealed, and the mortal goes his way. Occasionally I throw up all the disguises. I just go out the way I am. Hair long, a velvet blazer that makes me think of the olden times, and an emerald ring or two on my right hand. I walk fast, right through the downtown crowds, in this lovely, corrupt southern city, or stroll slowly along the beaches, breathing the warm southern breeze on sands that are as white as the moon. Nobody stares for more than a second or two. There are too many other inexplicable things around us. Horrors, threats, mysteries that draw you in and then inevitably disenchant you. Back to the predictable and humdrum. The prince is never going to come. Everybody knows that. And maybe Sleeping Beauty's dead. It's the same for the others who have survived with me and who share this hot and verdant little corner of the universe, the southeastern tip of the North American continent, the glistering metropolis of Miami, a happy hunting ground for bloodthirsting immortals if ever there was such a place. It's good to have them with me, the others. It's crucial, really. And what I always thought I wanted, a grand govern of the wise, the enduring, the ancient, and the careless young. But ah... The agony of being anonymous among mortals has never been worse for me. Greedy monster that I am. The soft murmur of preternatural voices can't distract me from it. That taste of mortal recognition was too seductive. The record albums in the windows. The fans leaping and clapping in front of the stage. Never mind that they didn't really believe I was a vampire. For that moment we were together. They were calling my name. Now the record albums are gone, and I will never listen to those songs again. My book remains, along with Interview with the Vampire, safely disguised as fiction, which is perhaps as it should be. I caused enough trouble, as you will see. Disaster, that's what I wrought with my little games. The vampire who would have been a hero and a martyr finally for one moment of pure relevance. You'd think I'd learn something from it, wouldn't you? Well, I did, actually. I really did. But it's just so painful to shrink back into the shadows. The stat. The sleek and nameless gangster ghoulie again, creeping up on helpless mortals who know nothing of things like me. So hurtful to be again the outsider. Forever on the fringes, struggling with good and evil in the age-old private hell of body and soul. In my isolation now, I dream of finding some sweet young thing in a moonlighted chamber. One of those tender teenagers, as they call them now, who read my book and listened to my songs. One of the idealistic lovelies who wrote me fan letters on scented paper during that brief period of ill-fated glory. Talking of poetry and the power of illusion, saying she wished I was real. I dream of stealing into her darkened room where maybe my book lies on a bedside table with a pretty velvet marker in it, and I dream of touching her shoulder and smiling as our eyes meet. Lestat, I always believed in you. I always knew you would come. I clasp her face in both hands as I bend to kiss her, 